I want to put an invitation out to leaders at workplaces. When people bring things to you, put that ego aside. They have just told you, I'm trusting you enough to bring this to you. Don't underestimate the value of that and how much that means. Welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast that explores the world of inequity in nonprofits and philanthropy, including where we should step into our power or step out of the way. I'm your host and fellow traveler on this journey, Michelle Shireen Miri. We're here to bring zero-cost information, case studies, and inspiration to everyone who wants to do better on this journey in the third sector. If you're new to these topics or this podcast, they can make you feel defensive. You might wonder why we present these critiques when so many people are benefiting from the good work happening in nonprofits and rely on the third sector for care and critical services. But if we don't examine how these systems and dynamics came to be, we can never hope to reimagine them, improve them, or do better to benefit the communities we are meant to serve. In our sector, we've been losing people in high numbers. And seeing more and more offerings around workshops and teaching sessions around work culture, often those things are a single issue and can be performative, like HR technique or hiring more diverse candidates or how to do a great review. No matter how much we want to change, things don't change unless the people at the top want to change it and are getting the training. Creating a healthy workplace for staff to work in is an organizational responsibility. There's so much here for us to learn, and Rakesh Lakhani is here to talk with us about the incredible workplace cultures he's helped to create. Rakesh Lakhani is based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He's been a director, executive director, and fundraiser for many years, and he recently served as an executive director at an organization that experienced 20 months of no turnover during the pandemic. Just wow. So here to tell us more, Rakesh Lakhani, welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you, Michelle, for having me here. It's a real honor. Let me start by saying like, I'm such a fan of this podcast. You do remarkable you. Uh, work here, great content and great guests and, and talking about things that people are not always talking about on the big stages. And so I'm so glad, like, it's kind of surreal to be here, to be honest, right now. So thank you so much for having me, especially to talk about this really important, this topic that's very important to me and, and, and to our sector. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing your story with me. I mean, you and I first connected several months ago after I'd been following your tweets. I've listened to every podcast you've been interviewed on. <laughs> and and I always love what you have to say. And so I'm glad we were able to connect a few months ago. And you shared this amazing story with me about the workplace that you've been able to create. And I'm wondering if you might share a little bit more about that particular story and what happened. How'd you do it? <laughs> well, I'm happy to share. I'm open book. And let me just say that I will never position myself as some kind of expert in workplace culture, that it was easy, that I have all the answers, because that's not the truth. But I can mm -hmm. say that, you know, with effort, intentionality, focus, resources, support from those around you, you can actually build something quite special. And I'm very proud of um, future possibilities for kids and what we uh, what we were able to achieve there by really understanding and agreeing that a measure of success was not only how much money we raised, how many children reached in our programs, those types of things, but also how are the staff doing? It was it was like in the strategic plan that this is this has to be something that is measured and is at the top. And I always say to the board of directors, we are not going to grow and do our work on the backs of the employees and at their expense. So uh -huh. I think that that's like the kind of, um, that's really important to me because in the end, we're all people. 
So, um, and actually it was actually, it's actually 22 months. Uh, I realized when I think about it, that we had no turnover and, um, this is public domain knowledge now that I, uh, I recently, I left the organization. So I was actually the first person to break that turnover streak, which is, I was, I was sad about it. Um, <laughs> and, and so, and I left for other reasons. I have to say this, a phenomenal workplace, incredible board, great staff. And so, you know, we, we can talk about that maybe later about, you know, why did you leave such a great, great organization? But, you know, it's, it's, I was there for eight years as the ED and mm-hmm. with that conscious focus on how, what kind of workplace do we want to, to work in? And I thought to myself, what kind of workplace do I want to work in? And yeah. can we shape and create that? Um, being an ED, obviously, you have a little bit more power to be able to actually put that into place. But to me, to be successful in fundraising and in social good, um, staff and people need to feel good. They need to feel safe. They need to feel valued. And and I think that not having that gets in the way of people doing their best. And truthfully, treating people without the respect they deserve is honestly just wrong. Yeah. You knew that you wanted to create a workplace that you would love to be a part of. You had some values that you based that on. And then what were the steps to getting there? Part of that is the commitment from leadership and management. I mean, that's the first place. Like, I, I hate to see people who are within workplaces. I've talked to so many people and they're like, I want to change things. I want to make things better. I want to, you know, and they're, they're you know, in a um, coordinator role or manager role, a role where they, they can influence a sort of, um, unfortunately, have a smaller sphere of influence within the organization to make some of these changes without buy-in from board and, and management. And so that's the first step. Because I would say, and I tell people this with, a, with some pause behind it, but if you're at a workplace and you're trying to make to make changes and you're speaking up about things and it's either being used against you or being ignored and the garbage continues, then maybe that's not the workplace for you. And that yeah. doesn't happen if you don't have the support of leadership and boards. So there's clear indicators of what that could look like. So that's the really is the first step. Another important piece is continual feedback loops for staff where mm-hmm. they feel that they can approach uh, management, they can approach their direct, you know, supervisor or leadership or board, whoever it is, with issues that are coming up. We don't have this kind of hierarchy and ivory towers and all that. And you know, I will acknowledge that we're in a smaller org, we're eight staff, but a little easier to do that. But that's a really important piece too: is that people feel like they can say something without fearing like that's going to be used against and the repercussions for for calling out something that legitimately is wrong. That is such a huge piece and gets underestimated here. Is how how much do people feel that they can say, oh, look, I see this going wrong. Like this is this, we did this fundraising thing and I don't agree with that. Or, you know, this donor, you know, uh, gave me a hard time or they, you know, they were, they were abusive to me uh, or, or someone within my own organization was that way. And I love that quote. I don't know if you've, uh, you've heard this quote. It's pretty famous that the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behavior the leader is willing to oh. tolerate by Steve Brunner, Brunner and Todd Whitaker. And that's okay. actually from a book that was written about school culture. But it, to me, it resonates in the larger world that you show as leaders what you're willing to accept within an organization. So when something happens and you like, nope, that's not okay, then people understand what you really stand for. Forget about the values on your wall and you know integrity and honesty and teamwork. Like All those words on the wall mean nothing if they're not exhibited in daily behavior. So that was another piece that was a step for us is we were looking at what we believe makes our programming work successful. And we're working with an evaluator. And we actually realized all the folks in the room, we had you know, different people from, from that are stakeholders within, within the organization. And they all credited the way that we do things, like that cultural piece as an mm-hmm. element of the success. So we're like, mm-hmm. you know what? We got to break this down. We've always said there's something special here, but 
people are coming to us, there must be a way to kind of break that down and say, what are those things that make the organization what it is? And so we, we, we got that feedback from other people. And so then they, they said things like, you know, I, I, can, I can show up and I can be human. Like y'all understand that I'm a human being and things go on in my life as volunteers or staff. Um, you know, people remember my name. I don't feel like a number here where some places I volunteer and I feel like I don't matter. Um, you know, y- y'all collect so much feedback and then you actually do something with it. So mm-hmm. we actually boil down, you know, all those things that were actual behaviors and we boil those down into five culture statements that we then put into you know, our staff, our board have it, volunteers get it. And it's, it's things like, like that, that not just words on a wall, but actually indicate what is expected of me here? And, and then we actually ask people, how are we doing when we do, you know, surveys and things about how are we living up to those culture statements? So I, those, are, those are some steps. Like there's not like, I wish I could say it was a linear playbook, but right. those are some of the key, the key things. It must be really difficult to figure out how to place all of the feedback into action, because I'm sure you got a lot of feedback once you requested it, once a feedback loop was active and, and people are feeling more comfortable knowing that their feedback won't be rejected. Uh, and will actually be utilized, you must have received a lot of feedback on a lot of different topics. How do you prioritize and operationalize from there? Well, we always were doing, you know, stuff with volunteers and kids in the program about like, how is it going for you and all that and tell us how you feel. And we would take that and we're like, well, are we doing that with our own team members? Like we have, you know, converse, lots of conversations and it's a very open environment where people feel like, you know, they can, they can bring things up and, you know, we incre- we, we were, we're getting better and better that over time. But we're like, how do people really feel? Because honestly, so we were working for the last uh, a while, a couple of years with, with uh, someone named Jillary Massa, uh, who uh, has a, gr- a group or, uh, called Inclusive Leaders. And so she was like an external facilitator that's been coming in to really do some great work supporting us around our anti-oppression and anti-racism work internally and with our board and how oh, it plays yeah. out into every facet of the organization. And one thing she said that was so powerful was, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how great and flat the organization is, the world we're in, you're in a corporate hierarchy and that's built in. And so I've told team members that if you have a problem and it's something that I've done, I might be the problem. And you may, if you don't feel like you can bring it to me, go to the board, like go to whoever, take it where you need to. And I don't feel bad because if I'm, I'm part of the problem, then I don't want to continue to be that. So first of all, if you feel like you can bring it to me, I'd love it if you could do that and we can have a chat and hopefully demonstrate it to folks over time. I mean, part of this is we had team members bringing things up to us reluctantly because of their experiences at past workplaces. Right. They would say, I, I wouldn't, didn't know if I'd bring this up because I was nervous because last time I did this, I had a horrible experience. I was pushed out of the org. I was, you know, I was treated poorly. I was now like seen as a, an outcast because I was, you know, a, a troublemaker. And so for, when the first those, of those things come to you, you know, that first instance of someone bringing stuff up can really shut them down if you don't sort of, of do it in the, in the right way. So there's a few ways you can collect the feedback. One is, of course, inviting it to come directly to you or through the, the channels you have. But then we actually did an anonymous employee engagement survey about three years ago. So we asked questions like, how do you feel? It rate, rated on a scale of one to five. Is this an inclusive environment? How are we doing on things like compensation? How are we doing on, um, like literally give a rating on how much you agree with the statement. I can bring things to management without fear of negative consequences. Like that's an actual question on there. And then we can see how are people doing on a quantitative scale. And then we had a lot of qualitative questions too. So like people can just open up and say, say things that weren't there. And that was very eye-opening because mm. then you can actually have a numerical value on something that is like maybe hard to sort of figure out. So then you can prioritize and say, what are people telling us through their ratings, through their words? And this was administered externally. 
So we told them, we don't want to know who said what. I don't want to know. I don't want to know that. I want you to be completely open and know that this is anonymous. We don't know who anybody is. And then we had that information shared back to them, to me and the, and our uh, management team with no indicators, like uh, no quotes, none of that stuff, because we don't want to know. We just want the truth. And so when people knew yeah. that, they really felt like we heard things that people may not have actually shared before. And so no matter how open and approachable, you know, I'm a teddy bear, I think, but <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> people may not always feel like they can say those things. So I think that was the really, then we did that for three years in a row and our engagement scores continued to go up because we would address the items that were in there. You know, when I've sat on teams trying to decide how we're going to do surveying, there's always a voice in the room who's very, if not all of the voices in the room, who are very against anonymous feedback. One of the arguments is, but if you give me anonymous feedback and you rate a one on a scale of one to five, and all your colleagues are, you know, rating three, four, five, we want to know what that one is. So we don't want the survey to be anonymous because we want to be able to take care of the person who's rating something a one, right? Another argument is so-and-so in finance keeps mentioning that there's a big systemic issue here. We don't want to hear the systemic issues. Do I need to talk to her again about the fact that we cannot address the systemic issue, right? Like stop mentioning in the survey. So basically I've heard arguments against anonymous surveys and I'm wondering what would you say to folks who are kind of against anonymous surveys or to folks who are trying to kind of persuade their colleagues to make it okay? Yeah, I guess my question is, you know, I think it's coming from a place of fear. I would ask, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to come up in this survey? Here's my thing. If you're if you're an organization, you're not open to anonymous feedback, it probably means that you're not going to take whatever feedback. And that's just the vibe I'm getting. It's probably yeah. the kind of vibe where you're not going to be doing stuff with the feedback anyways. It feels like it's just a bit of a, of a song and dance. So, you know, to me, the anonymous feedback is important because how are you going to get the real truth? Like even when we have team meetings and we're soliciting feedback, we have an open conversation, but then we use a tool that allows people to type in their thoughts anonymously. And honestly, it's a little oh. different. And I, again, it's, a, it's an ego, it's an elite of leader, leader's ego to say, but I'm so approachable. You should be able to tell me anything. You know, you if you're if you're rating this a one out of five, I want to support you and take care of you. And it's like, yeah, but what if you're the problem as the leader? Also true. And yeah. That's, that's, I think there's an ego thing in there. I think there's a fear thing in there. And I do agree that, yeah, you might want to be able to make this stuff actionable. But, you know, I think there's other ways to do that. I mean, the purpose of our survey was to kind of have something quantifiable that we could measure year over year compared to the last year and say, are new issues coming up? Did any of the ratings go up or down? And then we have a good idea of where things are at. And it's actually, you know, there's, there's some merit, there's some actual tangible um, evidence there. So uh, I think the anonymous piece is absolutely critical because without that, just, I hate to say it, even the most approachable leader, you just will not get the full truth because of the nature of the, the workplaces that we're in. It's pre- pretty rare that, that people will feel comfortable. Also, because they've got a history, perhaps within other orgs or within your own org of just being shut down when they tell the truth. So right. I would say this anonymous piece, um, in conjunction with other place, places where you're, where you're not anonymous, um, is, is critical. I totally agree with you. And I think another piece that's critical seems to be around conflict resolution. How do we handle conflict within staff? I know that, you know, even the best intentioned organizations, you know, might put in a line item, as I have several times at orgs I've been with, a line item for like hiring a facilitator if there's conflict, et cetera. But that is rarely enough. Usually I find that there needs to be some type of 
agreement about how we deal with conflict. What have you seen in that arena and what happened at your organization? Yeah, I think the conflict resolution is definitely a, a, a big issue because if they're not handled well, they can cause a lot of problems. Here's my thing, though. We have to recognize that, you know, bad workplaces, we know they negatively impact some folks more than others. Let's just be real about that. One of the things that we also know, or that at least I have also seen in workplaces that I've been a part of, is conflict is a big issue. How we resolve conflict, what happens around conflict. So I know with conflict resolution, if it's not handled correctly, then we know it can cause other issues. And we know that some people experience negative impacts in a poor workplace culture more than others. So if you look at the ratios of women in the workplace and then representation management, huge discrepancy. And we look at the experience of racialized, queer, disabled folks, who's given the opportunities within the org, who is not really heard, who is pushed aside when they when they sort of bring things up or when they bring up things that are related to conflict. That's because right. often they're, they're the ones uh, experiencing more than others where people are, 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 are being, you know, uh, abusive or harassing or, or uh, you know, withholding information or not inviting people to meetings. We've seen so much of that. We don't need proof of that. And if, if you've read Collecting Courage, which I'm a big fan of, it was a really important yes. piece of work. Yes. And uh, a lot of heart and, and, and labor went into that work. But it talks yeah. about the experience of, of 14 Black fundraisers in Canada and mostly Canada and also uh, um, the U.S., and it's absolutely horrible. Like this, like here we're out here talking about social good, and yeah. then here we are. This is happening within our own workplaces. So for conflict resolution, I think that it's it is it also come down to that same piece we talked about around culture. Is what is acceptable within the organization? If somebody brings something forward and it's clear that this person was was not, you know, <laughs> being kind to somebody else, and they were like they were being abusive or whatever the case would be, then that has to be addressed right away. It doesn't mean the person's bad and you write them off and n- none of that. But if they if not, nothing happens, then of course that behavior will continue, and it tells everybody this is how conflict is handled within the organization, and essentially it isn't handled within right. the organization. Right. So it, it's, it takes it really is again on leadership to really demonstrate that. Say when conflict comes up, we're going to find whatever worked for the org, and there's many different methodologies. So I'm not an expert in that, but one thing is you know how do we make sure that if let's say you say one person has an issue with somebody else and you put two people in a room and with the manager sits there, is that really a level playing right. field? Is that really a fair place to have that, that conversation? And sure. is there a, a, a pre-existing understanding and relationship within the org that, that, that we're all here, uh, we respect each other. We're here to support each other. If that, if that's already not there, then conflict resolution is not going to work because there's a bigger underlying issue. And I think that's more of the problem yeah. is that the workplace just says, go, 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 get the work done. And the conflict stuff, how staff feel, how they get along with each other, that's actually not uh, critical to us. So there's there's direct conflict resolution measures for sure. But again, not a, I'm not an expert in, but is your culture conducive to people even feeling like they can have those conversations with each other? And are they there for a shared common purpose? And, and everyone recognizes that this is the only way that we're going to really achieve what we want to achieve is by by supporting each other. And when conflict happens, because it does, yeah. I would be more worried about an org where there's no conflict because that means people are not being real. Where human beings, conflict happens. But how it's managed is such a critical piece for demonstrating that culture. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm wondering along the same way, this is a little out of what we plan to talk about, but I'm wondering for the, in the same vein, like how are you just personally feeling about cancel culture? <laughs> That's definitely a little bit different than what we were going to talk about. I don't mind. I'm 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 open. I feel like the people that really know 
what this kind of work is. Like whether conflict resolution, anti-oppression, anti-racism, the people that really know this stuff. And I, again, I'm not an expert in those areas, but anyone I've talked to and work with, nobody's supporting that somebody makes a mistake and they get erased from the face of the earth and they're no longer well. Like I've never heard anybody actually say that. Yeah, the truth is if you're in certain positions of power and you do something, then you got to be accountable. This doesn't mean there's no accountability. But I feel like people, if people, this fear of making mistakes is that is white supremacy. We know that, right? And so it's like we all have to have this buttoned up, kind of curated kind of vibe that's going on. And we can't get messy in the workplace because of that. We put on these veneers and we just smile and ignore these issues. So I feel like without people feeling they can make mistakes, then nobody's going to be real. And then you've got this artificial workplace. So people are going to make mistakes. We're freaking human beings, you know? So I feel like when that happens, the person... There has to be a mechanism for that person to either we talk about call in or call out, depending on what's appropriate in that moment or afterwards. And the person that you've hired, hopefully, and the culture is one where we, we, we know that when it's being brought to you, it's not like you're a bad person. You did this thing. It impacted somebody else. We want you to be aware of that. And here's how we want to see it go out. Like, let's talk about it. Let's have that, these conversations so that we can realign where we went off the rails from what's expected versus what actually happened. And so mm-hmm. I think that is... Um, you know, a critical uh, a critical piece here in terms of, of that. So when you talk about cancel culture, the fact that somebody makes one mistake and it was from a long time ago and uh, we've grown as as human beings, it doesn't mean there's no accountability. Just, just let's be clear. If there's an apology needed, if there's reparation, need to be, if there's repair needed to be done, 100%. But I don't think that person should be like written off, depending what it is. Some things I'm like, yo, you just crossed the line. And yeah, I don't, I think you need to take some time away. And we see what happens to some folks. They just continue to fail up and fail forward. And it's like, no, no, yeah. that person is not open. They are not willing to change and they're going to keep causing harm. So in that case, maybe that person needs to be you know, in a, removed from their particular role. But generally speaking, I think the people that know this are not about just you know, doing about, about treating people that way. Right, right. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri. We're speaking with the lovely Rakesh Lakhani of Toronto, taking a look at how we can do better by our colleagues. Now, a word from our sponsors. As a consultant, one of the biggest pain points I see is a lack of organization internally. Many community-based organizations and smaller and honestly sometimes larger nonprofits as well are using spreadsheets or clunky databases that take a lot of time to use. And maybe your organizational system isn't really understandable to others who need that information. Ultimately, what all that means is that many opportunities might be left on the table. The vision for Neon One is that untapped generosity is unlocked when nonprofits have affordable, connected tech and resources. That's why they've built an entire ecosystem of software and services to make it easy for your nonprofit to create amazing generosity experiences. Visit neonone.com slash Michelle for more. As I think about this, I'm thinking about workplace culture, but I'm also thinking about just generally, you know, when we have issues with one another and movements, for example, there isn't a structural hierarchy to talk to. There isn't a board of directors, right? So we have to take accountability ourselves to work things out. So cancel culture looks different in different places uh, and how we work around that or with that also looks different. But y'all, I'm hearing some shit from the CCF groups, okay? And I just want to shout out real quick that 
it's not okay to be canceling people out without having full conversations and accountability conversations and doing repair work because we are here to move forward together. We are not here to be canceling each other out. So just like a quick side. So Rakesh, we've heard from you about what it's like to create a beautiful workplace culture. And honestly, like it sounds like a utopian, <laughs> utopian internal culture. I want to work for you wherever you go next. But, uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners will. But I'm wondering, you know, what else do you think leads to success in difficult times for folks who are working in the third sector, for organizations in the third sector? Well, first, I do want to say that I'm not a solo, you know, like maverick here. And I did this all myself. 100% no. Um, you know, we have a lot of folks around like our board and in particular our staff team and a couple of folks who, you know, let's say when the pandemic started and I, you know, would lean on each other and said, like, how are we going to look out for the people? Right. Yes, the cause. Yes, everything else. But how are we going to make sure that people are OK? Because this is going to we knew from the beginning that this is going to be a big thing and it's going to affect people. Yeah. So I just don't want it to appear, appear that I'm like this magical person. I mean, I guess I'm in a role where I can. I mean, that, OK, but... you can still be magical. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, it is. It does have to be, you know, everyone has to be on, on board with it. And if yeah. you can make that agreement, it's very, very powerful. So I think that that's you asked what other ways. I think that's one thing is everyone has to be in agreement about what that's going to look like. So those culture statements I mentioned, we have to be mutually agreeable. It's not something that is created somewhere and then then trickles down to everybody. Absolutely not. It has to be co-created and has to be something that everybody agrees in. I think for me, there's a bunch of other things that you've been hearing about in terms of workplaces and how they can treat people. So, you know, investing in people, 100%. So that's professional development. It's coaching. It's giving people, you know, uh, room for growth and, and projects and, 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 you know, listening to their feedback. And like, it's a human need. Right. People feeling valued, appreciated, heard. These are core human needs that I think often get forgotten. So you have to. Yes, you need policy. You need to put these things in a place where no, this is actually in policy that people can't just quickly like snuff out. You put it in your bylaws. You know, I heard about this, uh, this concept called radical governance, where you can actually embed things in your bylaws that aren't just about like typical governance things. You can put some of these things in there so they live longer and embed within the organization and influence everything that you do. So you need the policy but then the actual practice on a day-to-day basis of what happens within the org philosophically, you need the right people there who are agreeing with this. Um, and then other things like just how, what are the, what are the workplace conditions? And people, I think we take advantage in the sector of people who, you know, I'm saying don't take advantage of the bleeding hearts, y'all. These are people here that are, that care about the causes. Yes, they, they need to, but then it's like, well, you care so much, so you should go this extra mile. You should work those extra hours. Meanwhile, our, uh, with a lack of competitive pay, right? And dealing with things often that, you know, you're, you're if, depending on the cause you're working on that are quite intense and you take home with you and are very, very challenging things that you might be seeing uh, in your day to day in social good. It, it, it's, it, there's such a range of causes. And, you know, we've heard about that sort of um, uh, third party you know, traumatic, traumatic experiences, just, even just someone I heard uh, there was that, that case of someone who was doing communications for an organization dealing with very traumatic issues. And they started to feel that they weren't even seeing anything directly. Mm. And so I think. We have to. We we can't take advantage of folks. We need to to buffer people around with with things like you know com- proper pay, like hundred percent, right? It might take time because you can't maybe turn your budget overnight. But you talked about this in another episode. We gotta we gotta we gotta look at that hard. Uh, we gotta talk about t- uh, you know proper paid time off. And here's the thing, right? You can just sort of give people lots and lots of paid time off. But if you haven't facilitated their workload, then you're just gonna stress people out. 
if you tell, oh, get an extra week of vacation, you take that week off. Well, that's, you know, who, who, what's what's happening while I'm gone? Is, does that mean that my workload is also kind of factored in? So in the end, it's, it's also a workload management issue. Um, there's things like, are we giving people space to to take the time they need for for them for themselves when they need it? Are we are we being supportive of uh, of people's mental health? Um, are we building in um, those those mechanisms that are often not used around yeah like paid time off? This this four day work week is something that I'm hearing a lot about. If if your workplace mm-hmm. is is able to do those things and even remote work. Right. It's, again, not possible in every organization. Not every workplace wants it. Not every employee wants it. But the idea of choice. And I'm hearing all these workplaces going back after their employees have overwhelmingly said, this is working so well for us. I have so much more balance. And then we're saying, no, we now, now we need you to come in the office three days a week. Why? Oh, no reason. Because we're paying for this office space. I mean, that's not that's not good enough. So you know, really giving people that flexibility and choice. Those are the workplaces of the future that are going mm-hmm. to succeed and get in, in, in obtaining and hiring and keeping staff and, and achieving their missions. So like big shout out to, for example, Food Share Toronto, who is a huge, I say, I always say I have a professional crush on this organization and <laughs> Paul Taylor, the, 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 the ED and all the great people he works with. And everyone loves it there because they have, you know, they have their, their pay scales are on their website. Awesome. You know what I'm like, talk about That's pay transparency. Amazing. That's just you can go to their website and just find their their pay scales there. And they did things like starting to pay people who are interviewing for 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 uh, for jobs there. And then recently, the cost of living in Canada for last year was something like seven percent. And you know they had built in some cost of living increases that were lower than that. They're like, you know what, we can't do that. So they just did a seven percent bump for everybody to align with wow. the cost of living. So it's like. You can do it. And guess what? They are not only financially successful, they are doing amazing work. They're expanding and they're they're they are all about justice. So to me, this also is an equity and justice issue about how we treat people within our own orgs and often the hypocrisy of how misaligned that is with what we say we're out to do externally. And then within our own walls, there's this horrible secret in many orgs that we're treating people like crap and we're supposed to be about, you know, about these these bigger things. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, there's there's a couple of, of things. Let me just take a look Good. here. One thing that I'm really excited about is um, Liz LeClaire and Rebecca Lamb are leading the development of the Fundraiser Bill of Rights. Mm. And uh, this is something where, you know, fundraisers often walk into, if you think about it, it's such really baited environments that are just not safe to be in whereas we've got this huge power dynamic often it's women meeting with men and there's we know the kind of horrible things that happen there's tons of evidence and stories and it's absolutely horrible like we cannot have that happening so this fundraiser bill of rights is one of those kinds of projects that's being worked on to say hey if you're not sure what to do i mean to me it's like make sure that your employees are not experiencing abuse and harassment at the hands of donors or volunteers or whoever right or, or other staff members i mean yeah. i don't but but the bill of rights is going to kind of really talk about what it means for a fundraiser to feel safe and to be able to do their best work. So that's a, a project that's coming up that I'm excited about. And I think will be a model for, we have a donor bill of rights, right? Yeah. And yeah. it was been prioritized obviously, but now it's like, no, what about the people that are within our organizations and, and creating that environment where, where they can do their best work? So that's one project that I'm really excited about that's coming up. Ooh, shout out. I know that Portland food bank also has a fundraiser bill of rights and, um, yeah, and I and I think there are some folks who are working on it in other spaces as well. We'll be really excited to see that. Maybe we'll touch base with Liz in an IG live soon. She was a, a, a guest on an earlier podcast. 
I've listened to I've listened to her, her podcast. <laughs> I'm a big fan. We're we're connected for sure. I, I think I've covered most of my notes, but there was, this was one that I absolutely must like bring up because it's it's just blew my mind. Okay, go ahead. Um, I was uh, attending a conference and uh, Kishana Palmer was talking. Shout out to Kishana, who's also been a guest on the pod. Yeah, absolutely, an absolutely brilliant, wonderful human. And it was the party at the end of Patriarchy Conference, actually. Mm. And um, Kishana t- talked about something that was just so brilliant. And in workplaces, right, we talk about boundaries and we talk about guardrails. So we know that in our in our sector that people will go the extra mile because they care about the cause. And so we say to people that you know. Here's here's the bound. Here, you can go ahead and set your boundaries. You decide what hours you work. You decide, you know, when when you've had enough. And then people aren't always good at necessarily doing that because maybe they see other people not doing that. Maybe they get implicit expectations from their manager or whatever whatever the case is. And so boundaries are great, and and we need people to be able to set them. But that requires the staff member to be the one to kind of do that. And so we have to say yes, draw the lines, and we'll we'll accept that. But guardrails is the other part of it. And guardrails are what the organization builds in to prevent staff from going into those places, especially if they might not always, you know, recognize that that uh, they're about to burn out or whatever the case would be. So an example of that is, you know, this idea of unlimited vacation that's out there. Yeah, right. Super popular in the tech sector, growing popularity in other spaces. It's it's very it's very popular. And what they found was people were taking less vacation. So the boundary is, oh, you decide when you want to take vacation as long as your work gets done. The guardrail was when organizations are now saying, but here's the minimum amount of vacation you have to take in a year and you have to take a week off in a row. And sometimes there's legal actually things you have to do that in that space. But um, that's the guardrail where it's like, we know that some people are just going to work through and and maybe it's seen as negative to take vacation or I I just want to keep working. And so, no, you got to take three weeks. I'm going to make sure that happens. I mean, first of all, I think three weeks is, it should be more than that too. So, you know, we, we implemented our org, we put in, everyone starts with four weeks and and now I'm seeing our orgs doing doing more than that. So I'm like, you know, like, it's almost like we're in a good way. We're like competitively like say, Hey, like who can offer like the best, you know, the best workplace. And I I want to see that. You know what I mean? So, so that, that, that concept from Kashana is so important here that what can organizations do to do the hard work of building and guardrails, not just expecting that employees will always self-manage because there's so many reasons why they might, might not. And that's why we see people, you know, burning out or, or having so many issues with each other or, or just leaving. And so it's like, no, let's, let's, let's prevent that through policy and practice. I love that. It must be a little tricky to think about policies not being paternalistic, right? Like there must be a really fine line around paternalism, you know, and uh, guardrails. That must be a tricky one for different organizations to work out. And that's a really great example of the guardrail, um, guardrail and boundaries. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsors? You can join our community of individual supporters on Patreon, and if you want to find out how to get your name and work out to our ever-expanding community, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We would love to have you. Speaking of sponsors, we're so glad Neon One has joined The Ethical Rainmaker fam. Part of the reason I'm grateful for Neon One's sponsorship of The Ethical Rainmaker is because community-based orcs thrive when they put people first. That's the point of community centrism. So what does a community-centric future look like? It looks like focusing on people and not their money, focusing on the experience of connection, of connecting with people. Neon One uses tech to accelerate that experience. 
Their mission is to connect nonprofits with technology and resources that personalize their generosity experiences. You can learn more today about their work at neonone.com slash Michelle. Now let's get back to our conversation with Rakesh Lakani. Anything else you wanted to talk about? I want to put an invitation out to leaders at workplaces. When I say leader, I mean, anyone can be a leader, obviously, but let's be real. There's certain people who are in positions to do and enact things more than others. That's just the reality of the hierarchies we're in, is when people bring things to you, really put that ego aside. To me, when somebody brings something to you that's an issue, they have just told you, I'm trusting you enough to bring this to you. Don't underestimate the value of that and how much that means. And that experience will determine whether they bring stuff to you again in the future. So just put your ego aside, even if it's related to you or something you feel responsible for or accountable for. And like, oh, but I messed that up. So now you know, I'm not going to listen to this because I can't, I can't handle that, right? Really, it's that humility piece that's going to really allow people to see that, yeah, this is a place to be trusted because the truth is a lot of people, people treat employees to say, oh, we don't trust them. And you can see the way that they operate. It's like, we assume people are going to you know, abuse the system. And when you build things that way, it's not, it's not, that's all it does is it prevents people from, from doing that. When really we want to say, let's treat people like adults. Let's, if we want people, employees to trust the organization, then we have to demonstrate trust upfront. It has to come first from the organization. So when someone brings you something, demonstrate that you're listening, do something about it, and then that will have remarkable impacts. I know for me, one example was at a team meeting, uh, a respected team member, someone who I really respect and admire, we're talking about, uh, I, I use the terminology commit suicide. And um, and that terminology is not actually okay. And so this was years yeah. ago, but they were kind enough to say in the meeting, and I was glad they felt, well, can you do that? Say, actually, can I just share something about why that terminology is not okay? And we talk about different terms because then it treats it like it's talking about like it's a, it's a, it's a crime to be committed. And so I was so blown away that they were able to bring that up, you know, in a meeting and I thanked them for it after. And I was like, really? So again, if, if in that moment I'd been like, you know, shut them down or showed other team members there that I wasn't open or listening, that would have spoke volumes about what other people felt they could bring up and bring to me. So really it's, it's hard to do, but that's my call to leaders is just really, it's not about you. It's about the greater good, the cause and the people within the organization are, are so critical and, and just don't underestimate the importance of your role in, in how much you impact the, the well-being of the people around you. Yes, that's a great example. And thank you. I also wasn't aware about using the term suicide in a different way. So I'll be thinking on that. There was something that you said um, on the Intersections podcast, and they asked you a question about like, what leads to success during difficult times? And you were like, you just like listed off diversified funding, deep community relationships, strong staff culture, clear direction and adaptability. And I know that speaks to greater organizational success. Um, And specifically, you named strong staff culture, which we've been focused on today. But if you had anything else to say about what you think leads to our greater successes. I think those were ones where people would ask, you know, how what were the factors for getting through the pandemic? And there were things that we already had in place. So I think that's a key part is like, start somewhere, right? The, let me say the best time, what is it? That I'm probably going to mess this up, but the best time to start was yesterday. The next best time to start is right now. Mm-hmm. So so take steps because then you might be encountering situations where now it's too late to put some of these things in place because you're already losing lots of employees or people are not having a great time or you now your mission's suffering. So start somewhere, you know, do something. I think our, our sector is often stuck and I'm just like, 
you don't have to be perfect. You can't do it all at once. I know that that's not possible, but don't just keep doing what you're doing. That's the worst reason to do anything is because that's the way we've always done it. You always have to be questioning and doing things differently. So it's an encouragement to the sector to say, be open to um, what's happening out there. I think another factor for for success also is um, us not being, we're afraid sometimes to call stuff up within our own sector because we're like, but then donors will see and they won't give to us or things like that. Or we won't get funding. Yes, there's a lot of that fear. There's a ton of that fear. And I'm like, well, what if donors are probably going to find out anyways? And what if they find out what's really going on? Are they then going to support us? And is that an excuse to also not address the issues that are there? So there's so many factors for sector success, but what I'd love to see is sector humility and also within Mm. organization, organizational humility. When something goes wrong, to say this went wrong, we're going to repair that. Here's what we're going to do about it going forward, and then actually follow through on that. I want to see that from organizations and also um, the sector overall. That that humility, because there's just so many folks out there just being like, everything's fine, it's fine the way it is. Don't don't rock the boat. Y'all are troublemakers. Y'all are causing problems. You're canceling people, and it's like, no, no, there's legit issues. Yeah, there are legit issues and we have to we we have to be talking about them and it's best if we do so openly not behind closed doors. You know, we um as part of the CCF uh, founding council when we were in our earlier stages and kind of trying to understand what kind of action we might want to take if we could take some action. We produced a survey and we surveyed folks, over 2,000 people across the U.S. and Canada responded. And there were folks who were working in and around fundraising in the sector. And even though we had heard from folks that they feel very alone and they're usually, they usually feel like the only one at the organization that wants change, we learned through the survey that the majority of folks actually wanted change. The majority of folks had identified that the way that we do things uh, or have done things traditionally in the sector are problematic, um, often promote white saviorism, often promote poverty tourism, often promote um, practices that disrespect or do harm to our communities. And that was the majority of people. And the majority of folks who took that survey also were ready to take action. But when we're not talking publicly, when we're not sharing openly, we do feel like we're the only ones in an organization or the only ones in a space or the only ones in the sector. And we're just not. We're just not. There are so many of us out there, but I feel that it is our duty (laughs) to speak openly as much as we can uh, without doing harm, but in order to move things forward. Yeah. I, and I love that research. Sorry. I, I should have actually brought that up in this conversation because it was so yeah. uh, amazing to have that work done and to see and say, hey, fundraisers themselves aren't happy. And it's not just a small fringe group. It's right. a, it's like a lot of people. So it's almost everybody. So that's critical. <laughs> and, and people feel like the way we do things are wrong. But you know, here's the thing. I understand why people don't always call stuff out because they're like, you're choosing between your job and, and doing what's right. And I, I would hate to be in a position to make that decision. But often we are in that spot. And I understand why people don't rock the boat, especially if they had a negative experience. But when you recognize, yeah. and this is why they don't, you know, in many places, they don't televise organizing, right? Because then you see, oh, other people have this issue and, and I can join them. You're like, oh, no, it must be just me. So I'm the problem. I'm just going to put my head down and continue to work. When you're like, no, there's actually a ton of us here that feel this way. And if we all got together and did something about it, then we can say we're not going to stand for this anymore as a collective. Yeah. It's like the power, hugely powerful. Hugely powerful. And the future that we want to see. Rakesh Lakhani, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on The Ethical Rainmaker about all the beautiful work that you've done and been a part of. 
Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. It was honestly a real honor to be here. And and thank you for giving the space for this conversation and for me and for your great questions. And I look forward to all the the great podcast episodes. I know I'll be listening to in the future from Ethical Like. I'm always already pumped up about the next season. <laughs> me too. Me too. Thank you so much. And that's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. We exist to provide zero-cost information, inspiration, and critique so that we can all do better. So if you're here for this content and this body of work, please share the pod, join our mailing list, engage with us on socials, write us a review. We're here specifically for you so that we can all do better. Thank yous are going to go out today to our ever-expanding community of Patreon supporters, including some of our oldest. That's Farah T. in New York, Alex K. in Chicago, Laura H. in Atlanta, Tiffany B.C. in Wilsonville, Oregon, Kim T. in Chino Hills, California, Shana G. in New York, and Jilly B. and Zoe B. You too can join this podcast as a sponsor or as a Patreon member if you like this pod. If you're interested in sponsorship, please feel free to reach out and drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced by me and Juliana Mayo with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative and production assistance by Coco Decker. Thank you to Rakesh Lakani for your time. You can follow Rakesh on Twitter at Constant Changes. As always, find links and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, and you can find them on Bandcamp. The Ethical Rainmaker comes to you again in two weeks, and you're going to love what's next.